Lights everywhere mark the beginning of Christmas. Families drink hot cocoa, hot cider, and hot tea, and eat warm cookies and warm donuts with plenty of candy as they erect what will become for a season the center of their homes, the family Christmas tree. Men and women spend at least one day fixing lights to the sides of their houses in the cold while the lazier among us just get those holographic lights and plug them in and point it at the house. Cities string lights from pole to pole. Businesses set lights in the windows and everything seems to be wrapped in millions and millions of stars. Christmas time turns the setting of the sun into the drawing back of a curtain as night is transformed into a theater showcasing a kaleidoscope of brilliant colors and dazzling light. At Christmas, darkness is eclipsed by beauty. The lights symbolically announce the fundamental truth of both Christmas and Christianity. The world is a dark place and that we will never find our way unless we look to the light. Christmas tells us that the blackness of death has been illumined by the light of life, and Jesus is that light. Jesus is our light, and we must look to him for salvation. That'll be our main idea this morning. That's what Isaiah is getting at in Isaiah chapter 9, as he prophesies, looks forward to the coming of a mighty king who will bring light into a world filled with darkness. Isaiah chapter 9, as we enter into it, is important to understand, is written in the prophetic perfect. What that means is Isaiah is putting himself forward in time and writing as if it already happened. These things are so sure to come about that he can write them in a tense that assumes they've already been accomplished. Uh, The poem that we'll be looking at in chapter 9 falls into two sections. The first three verses are the promise described. That's the what of the promise. And verses 4 through 7 are the promise explained. That's how the promise is going to come about. But to understand this promise of chapter 9 fully, we we need to reach back briefly into chapter 8 to give ourselves some context so that we can understand the problem that the promise is answering. So Outline's going to have two parts, as you can see before you, the problem of darkness and the promise of the light. Let's pray together and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, during this special Advent season as we remember that you came to earth for us, that you became like us in every way. We pray that you would cause us once more this morning to marvel at the glorious truth of your incarnation. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for uh, sending Jesus, your one and only Son, to become like us. To live a perfect life on our behalf, live the life we should have lived, and to die the death that we deserve to die. Father, we thank you that you raised him from the grave so that we could have hope and be united here together now, singing praises unto you. Lord, we thank you for all these things, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So a little bit of context. What you need to know about Isaiah is it is prophecy, and Isaiah is prophesying judgment that's going to come upon uh, Judah and all of the land of Israel. He's 
doing this in response to King Ahaz. And basically, King Ahaz has screwed up in trusting his political tactics rather than God. Instead of trusting God to protect him and the nation from their foes, Ahaz forged an alliance with Assyria. And as a result, in a cruel irony, Assyria will end up oppressing the Israelites. It's in the midst of this swirling upheaval that we find many in the nation of Israel following Ahaz's example of unfaithfulness. This is what we read in the back end of chapter 8, starting at verse 19. When they say to you, consult the spirits of the dead and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Look to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. There will be no light for them. The faithless in Israel are trusting in, they're looking to mediums and magicians rather than God's word. And so for them, there's only going to be darkness. The, the enthusiasm that the people have at this point in time for fortune tellers and spiritist evidences, their withdrawal from God it is a foolish and treacherous withdrawing from God. And we also see at the same time, God's withdrawal from them. He is justly and judgmentally allowing them to enjoy the darkness that they've chosen. Like their king, the people look to their own abilities and earthly things to help them. And in so doing, they, they plunge themselves deeper into darkness. Look at, look at verse 21. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking up, will curse their king and their god. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah has predicted the coming desolation, the dominion of distress and darkness, the reign of gloom and anguish for the faithless, for the nation. See, complicated as these verses seem to be at first blush, that their point is really quite simple. Refusing God and his word brings darkness. And the people love the darkness rather than God. And so God is judging them by giving them what they love, giving them what they want, his absence. Israel's problem here, indeed this is our problem, is the desire to be independent rather than Dependent. And what I mean by this is that we, we want to, as people, trust ourselves and our abilities, our things, instead of God. I think this pride is the heartbeat of evil that pushes uh, sin through our veins. Our wrong-headed desire to be our own gods is what fractured the world in the first place. It's what continues to bring darkness. I mean, Adam and Eve, at the beginning, they, they committed this same sin, right? They thought themselves smarter than God, that they knew what was best for their lives, and they wanted to be God rather than to be like God, and so they took the advice of a snake and rebelled against God with the bite of an apple. And consequently, they were thrust out of the garden into thick darkness, separated by their sin from light and life. And since then, we haven't got any smarter. We still think that we're smarter than God. We still take bad advice from people that are not God, including ourselves, and we still rebel against God, choosing darkness rather 
than light. We reject God's word. And this brings destruction. Like Israel, we are guilty of looking to our own resources and capabilities for answers. I mean, looking to ourselves and stuff, we can see is what sunk the world into the shadow of death, and yet still we persist in our mad folly. I mean, I wonder, what, what do you look for? Maybe it's not mediums or magicians. Maybe it is, I don't know. But what is it, or who is it that you look towards as your hope? As that person or thing which will bring you peace or satisfaction instead of God? I think our self-trust, our, our looking for salvation in the wrong places is um, really uh, exemplified in a well-intended but, but wrong definition of Christmas offered by the New York Times, this New York Times article, it's an old one, but their definition of Christmas read like this. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, this is what the authors are saying, we have the light within us And so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. Times article is singing the same happy Christmas hymn as John Lennon. I mean, you all know it because I brought it up last year too, right? It says, and so this is Christmas for weak and for strong, for rich and for poor ones. The world is so wrong. And so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fight. If we work together, we can end war. We can bring about happiness and unity in the world. And you know, the kids are in the background of that one. War is over if you want it. And they go over and over again. Finally, the last verse says, war is over now. I don't know how the last line is. It says now is the lyric, right? Friends, the idea that we can bring peace and happiness into our world, the idea that we can stop all the war if we just believe in ourselves and work together to use a technical term is gobbledygook. It's poppycock. It does not work. It is satanic sentimentalism. You see, the the evil one always whispers in the ears of people, not believe in me, but believe in yourself. Because that is the lie we love to buy. That we can fix our problems. That if we just trust in ourselves, we can overcome all the problems in the world. Friends, we cannot fix the world our sin has broken. I mean, a baby has a better chance at putting back together a glass bottle that they've shattered on the floor. The message of Christmas is not we will be able to put together a better world of peace and unity if we just work together, but the exact opposite. The message of Christmas is that we cannot heal, cannot save, cannot bring peace to ourselves, but instead that we must be healed, saved, rescued, and brought peace by another. You see, Christmas is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up, if we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. It says, we who are living in darkness need a light to dawn. Indeed, there is a problem of darkness in which we all live, and we need the promise of light. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. 
Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. This is Isaiah writing in that prophetic perfect as if it's already happened. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Notice, too, that the light does not come from the world, but dawns upon the world. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. God is promising to bring his people out of the curse of darkness and into the blessing of light into unmitigated happiness. That's the idea of the joy in this verse. You see, the joy of reaping during a harvest is is a joy that comes at peacetime, and the joy of dividing the spoils or the plunder of victory comes during wartime. And we have these two contrasting spheres of joy to underline the fact that the joy of those who are trusting in God's promise are going to have a complete joy that covers every realm of life. Every experience of joy that can be had is wrapped up in this idea, this experience of the light and life in verse 2. The joy of God's people will be full. Isaiah is insisting in these verses that hope is a present reality. It's part of what makes up the now, or it should be for the people that are listening to him. He's challenging God's people to decide. He's challenging you to decide how you will understand your circumstances and your experiences in this life. Will you look at the darkness and the negative things that surround you, perhaps dreams that didn't work out, and conclude that it's hopeless, that God has forgotten you, or perhaps God does not exist at all? Or will you recall his past mercies, remember his present promises, and be encouraged in the faith? Will you live right now with the hope that Christ has secured for you? The faithful live with hope and joy now, waiting for the completion of this promise later. Is your hope living? So that's the promise described, a light that will dawn on those living in darkness and bring about complete Joy. Now let's look at the promise explained, the how of this situation. How will this promise of light and joy be brought to people stuck in suffering and in the gloom of anguish? Well, the fundamental experience of hope and light that are, and, and joy that are outlined in verses 2 through 3 are related to the threefold explanation that follows in verses 4 through 6. The, the first explanation is liberation in verse 4. The second is entering into the unearned fruits of another's victory in verse 5. And the third and ultimate explanation is the birth of a child in verse 6. In other words, God's people will be brought joy as they are freed from bondage and brought into the blessing of another through a child that is born. Uh, If you want to remember it in a really Baptist way, you can just uh, tag each verse with one word and we'll make them alliterate. We'll alliterate a little bit so you can remember them. Uh, Verse 4 would be freedom. Verse 5 would be fruit. And verse 6 would be fellowship. Let's look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder 
the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The people can enjoy the light of life offered in the promise because God is going to break the chains of human oppression. Uh, and this verse, it's just it's so compact and so pregnant. It's filled with two allusions. Uh, the first allusion is to the Exodus. Isaiah is purposefully drawing upon vocabulary that recalls Egypt. Very Egypt words like yoke, burdens, shoulders, and oppressor. The language is aimed at jolting the minds of the Jewish readers to the plagues, the angel of death, the the death of the firstborn child, and of doorways covered with the blood of lambs. The dawn that would chase away the night would break them free from their distress and their anguish and their gloom. Just as they were saved from slavery for God, just as our fathers were saved from slavery in Egypt for worship of God, now they would be saved out of this current oppression for worship. The Exodus language would have excited them. And my hope is that it would excite you, especially after we've studied Exodus together, that it would send your heart to leaping because you know that the freedom they anticipate has its fullness in Christ. I love uh, Jesus' statement in Matthew uh, eleven twenty eight. He says, Come, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take my yoke. There's that Egypt language again. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As the blood of lambs covering doorways saved the firstborn children of Israel from death and judgment, so too does the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, cover us and save us from death and judgment. Our hearts ought to be excited at this allusion to the Exodus. Ought to be excited at this prediction of the coming one who would give his life so that we might live. Because we know that Jesus is the true and better exodus. That he's our exodus who saved us from our slavery to sin for relationship with God. Jesus is our light that draws us out of darkness and into joy. The second historical reference in this verse is to Gideon's great victory. And you might remember this story because we worked through Judges. It's been a while now, but we worked through Judges and it takes place in Judges chapters 6 through 8. I'm going to summarize it real quick for you here. Um, there is uh, a group called Midian. It's a, a nation and they've oppressed Israel and Israel's cried out to the Lord for help and so God's sent the angel of the Lord to a man of the weakest clan uh, and who is least in his house, a man named Gideon. And he says to Gideon, you, Gideon, Nobody from nowhere. You're going to save Israel from Midian. Gideon doesn't believe him, but through some fleas and through some other things, he's uh, coaxed into action. Eventually goes with about 32,000 troops to fight Midian. At which point God says to Gideon, Gideon, you have got way too many dudes here. All right, Send some of these guys home. So about 22,000 troops go home, leaving around 10,000. And then Gideon's ready to go again, but God interjects, hey man, that's still way too many. Send more away so that it's clear that what's about to happen, that the victory that's about to occur is my victory. It is a testament to how awesome I am rather than 
a testament about your leadership or military prowess. And so eventually, Gideon whittles his army down to about 300. God then secures victory for Gideon and glory for himself, routing the enemy with shouts in the sudden appearing of light in the darkness. Likewise, God's victory over evil and death, our greatest enemy, was announced with shouts and the sudden appearing of light in the darkness. In Matthew 2, 2, wise men ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him with light appearing in darkness. And in Luke 2, 8 through 14, we discover there's shouting on the silent night, which I'm sure was in, in conjunction with Mary's shouting. It wasn't a silent night, despite what the, the hymn says. And the night might have been silent. I don't think Mary was. Anyhow, I'm getting off course here. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign, for you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Instead of yelling a sword for Gideon and a sword for Yahweh as the people did in Judges as victory was eminent, the angels shout glory to God in the highest because Jesus' victory is eminent. The shouting and the appearing of light come at the appearing of a greater conqueror than Gideon. And just like Gideon, this baby would be an unlikely hero with a humble pedigree who people would also doubt. Many thinking, this Jesus of Nazareth? A Galilean, a a nobody from nowhere is going to save God's people? Yes! Glory to God in the highest. Jesus has delivered us. He has sent his light into darkness. Jesus defeating death by his own death is the most unpredictable coup the most astonishing triumph anyone will ever know. I mean, the victory of our salvation is God's act and excludes all human glory. All the glory is His. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection win for us an unexpected victory. I mean, the cross and the resurrection are surprising. That God would save you by becoming like you, living in your place, dying in your place, and rising from the dead to secure you a place in God's family, is it's flabbergasting and shocking. It's scandalous. The the reference in verse 4 to the Exodus and to Gideon, these references work together to explain how God's light will free us, his people, and destroy the oppressive night that enslaves us. Verse 5 wants to make sure Uh, that we know uh, God's people have nothing to do with his victory. Look at verse 5. For every warrior's trampling boot of battle and every garment rolled in blood or bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. See, God is the one 
who creates a world of unity and peace, not us. God is the one who will bring truth to Lenin's lyric, war is over, not us. Peace comes not because of what we have done or will do, but because of what Jesus has done and will do. Because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied, we can know that Jesus will return so that there will be no more need for anyone to learn war or to make weapons. Indeed, all of these weapons of war will be burned in God's own domestic hearth. I mean, that's the picture here. All these things that used to be used for war are being thrown into the divine fireplace because they're no longer useful. It's a wonderful picture. Church in Christ, we gain all the benefits of victory without ever fighting. Our, our sharing in the fruits of Jesus' victory simply by believing in him, I think is really well illustrated uh, in a kind of obscure and peculiar story in 2 Kings chapters 6 and 7. So what's going on here is the Syrians have laid siege to Samaria, and, and times have gotten pretty desperate. Uh, mothers are eating their children and whatnot, and they're, the city is starving. It's really awful. And Elisha is the prophet at the time. And what happens is the king decides that all this terrible stuff is Elisha's fault. And so he sends his right-hand man, his captain, uh, to basically take off Elisha's head. Uh, Elisha, being a prophet, knows the guy's coming and locks his door. Uh, and they end up having this conversation kind of through, uh, through the doorway. And Elisha tells him in chapter 7, verse 2, that uh, salvation is coming, that food is going to be cheap and plentiful the very next day. He says, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. He says, you shall not eat of it because the captain refuses to believe this message of salvation. Then the story, it just really oddly shifts to these four lepers. Lepers weren't allowed to hang out with most people because they were diseased. And so they're, they're kind of in this entrance to the city gate while everybody else is further into the city and then the Syrians are on the outside. And they're having a conversation about their situation. And in, their, in the course of that conversation, they reason, you know, if we stay here at the gate, uh, we're going to die, right? If we go further into the city, we die. So let's take our chances and go to the, the Syrians and see what happens. I mean, they might let us live. But worst case scenario, we die, right? So they're going to take their chances with the, Assyria, or the Syrians, sorry, is what they decide. And then we read this in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 5. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp, the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired us against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. Now, after the lepers hang out for a little bit and are enjoying kind of this plunder, they're like, hey, we should tell everybody else. And so they go back into the city and tell everybody else, the siege is over. The Syrians have fled. We, we get to enjoy plundering the enemy. You see, Elisha's pronouncement, his prophecy is unbelievably true. He says, there's famine today, but there will be feasting tomorrow. The people do nothing, but God does everything. And so the people get to enjoy the fruits of his victory. And there's an interesting note towards the end of the story. 
the captain of the guard is sent to kind of guard the gateway as they kind of check this thing out. Uh, the king is like, no, they didn't really leave their campsites. They're just trying to draw us out of the city. They're all hanging out in the woods. And when we go to take all their stuff, they're going to kill us all. And so he's trying to keep people in the city. But the people are like, there's food out there. The Syrians have flown. We're going to get this food. And the captain of, guard, of the guard is sent setting in the city gates to kind of keep everybody in. And what happens is he gets trampled by the people and dies as they hurry out to this feast. Here's the point. God wins the battle against sin and death for us. But we can only enjoy the fruits of his victory, the perfect peace that he brings, if we believe. If we trust ourselves and persist in unbelief, we will not inherit the spoils of Jesus' victory. See, the great victory over evil does not require our own strength. It requires Jesus' strength. And we can receive the gift of salvation only if we receive Jesus by faith. We do all the sinning, he does all the saving. We, we, he, he, he is the one who vanquishes the enemy. We need only believe in him, turn from our sin, and take hold of the riches that are available to us. We receive this gift by faith. And the gift of God's promised salvation is most fully explained and wrapped up in the person of Christ. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We see the ultimate explanation of the promise of light and life and joy, unspeakable and full. It's in a child. A child is born. A son is given. This child will be a king, but but not just a king. He will be the king. The promised one will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These four titles throughout Scripture are used of God alone. And they signal us to the staggering truth about the child's identity. This child will be God himself. He will be God with us. This is one of the, the two supreme miracles of Christianity. I say there are two because people argue for either one, but one is the resurrection and the other is the incarnation. And and the more I think about it, I think the most staggering miracle may be the incarnation. I mean, think about it. It, it, It's ridiculous. It's mind-boggling and incredible, right? God is born. The unmade becomes made. The invisible becomes visible. The creator becomes part of creation. I mean, this is what's happening when God the Son is conceived in the womb of Mary. God is taking on flesh. I love how the hymn in Christ alone captures kind of all of this gospel story together. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. 
what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, I love this line, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. This is what Christmas is offering. This is a summary of the promises of God. This is what Isaiah is imploring his readers to do, to stand in the power and the promises of God, to trust in Christ alone. He's imploring us to look to the light for our salvation. He's saying, a day is coming when the darkness will be no more. And it has come, right? Christ came the first time to bear our judgment, and he's coming the second time to bring judgment. This promise has been fulfilled in part already, but its fullness is coming with the return of Christ. A child has been born. He does reign in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, but we are still waiting for the day when he returns and he rolls up all those garments from war, throws them in his fireplace, and ushers in a time of perfect peace. This is a great gift that God gives. Jesus gives himself for us. John 3.16 is famously said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't, don't miss the, just how profound that is. For God did not send his son, this is verse 17 of John 3, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, to enjoy freedom and triumph, light and life, joy unspeakable, all we must do is receive the son who has been given. But interestingly, if we keep reading, uh, which is often not done from John 3, 16 and 17 into verses 18 and 19, this is, we learn that this gift of Christ is not easily received. Indeed, it's often rejected. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, we've become accustomed to the darkness. We've befriended it. We've learned to delight in our self-rule, our self-determination. We've learned to love evil and hate God and His law. 
This is why the gift of God's saving grace is so hard for anyone to receive. This is why it takes an act of God to shatter the hardened heart and to breathe life into our lungs. You can think of it this way. Some gifts, by their very nature, uh, make it hard for you to receive. It's hard because you have to swallow your pride in order to receive those gifts. Uh, Tim Keller illustrates it this way. He says, imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend. Right? You're all getting together and, and you've got all those goodies out. We usually have cookies that have been decorated. Christmas trees lit up. The, the Christmas music is going. And you open this gift, and it's a book, which unless, if you're not a nerd like me, most people don't like to get books on Christmas, and so you're already disappointed. But, but as you open it, it's not just any book. It's a dieting book, right? But, well, then you take the ribbon and the wrapper off of another present, and in it you find another book titled Overcoming Selfishness. Now, if you say to your friends, thank you so much, you are, in a sense, admitting, for indeed, I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to receive them is to admit that you have flaws and weaknesses and that you need help. Perhaps some of you have had the uh, occasion in your life when you were on hard times financially and a loving friend came to you and offered you a large sum of money to, to help bail you out. If that's ever happened to you, you probably found that to receive that gift, you had to swallow your pride. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. To accept the true Christmas gift, you have to admit that you're a sinner in need of saving. Oddly enough, I think this gift of faith in Christ is harder for uh, many churched folk or religious folk to receive than even the irreligious. Because religious people, in their pride, often look to and trust in their own goodness rather than Jesus' goodness. Look to our own works rather than Jesus' works. And as a result, we end up refusing God's gift in favor of our own goodness. All the while playing at church and Christianity, but not really belonging to Christ or his community. I think too many good church folk will one day say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, while he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they were too prideful to admit their complete inability to save themselves and to trust the promise of God. I mean, don't let that be you. Maybe you've been coming to church 80 years or eight weeks. Maybe you came in late and only been here eight minutes. It's never too early or too late to stop looking to what you've done for your identity and for your salvation and to start looking to what Christ has done. Friends, you won't understand Christmas until you receive the gift of Christmas. You can't truly celebrate Christmas until the light of Christmas dawns on you. We must receive the Son who has been given. Nothing less than His incarnation, life, death, and resurrection can save us into perfect peace and unassailable joy. 
Because our sin, your sin requires judgment. Judgment that Jesus took on the cross. I mean, on the cross, Jesus takes the darkness we deserve. The light of the world brings life into the world by dying for the world. Because of him, in him, there is no more gloom. The light of the world doesn't stay slain by darkness. He, he bursts from the grave in glory. Friends, Israel waited for a child. And now we celebrate during this season the coming of that child. And we look forward to his return as king. The Lamb of God has guaranteed that everything for us, everything sad, will one day become untrue. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has won our victory and will soon toss every garment rolled in blood into the fire. The great hero of history has delivered us from our sins. He has broken the rod of the oppressor. He has brought those who trust in him into peace with God, into the fullness of joy. He has brought light into the world so that we might glorify and enjoy him forever. And this is good news, that in Christ we get freedom from sin, the fruits of victory over death, and best of all, fellowship with God himself. How wonderful it is that Jesus is our hope, that Jesus is our light, and where all other sources of identity and self-worth and salvation fail, and they will fail, Jesus remains. Jesus is is a light for us when all other lights go out. Friends, look to the light. Believe in Jesus. And praise God that we, a people walking in darkness, have seen a great light. Praise God that a light has dawned in the land of darkness. Let's pray. Lord God, because you really did make yourself to be born in a manger, we recognize that we have something no other religion even claims to have. We have a God who truly understands us from the inside of our experience. We have a God who has become like us in order to redeem us. A God who doesn't bid us to work our way to him, but a God who works his way to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for plunging yourself into our suffering, putting on human skin and living and dying and rising for us and for your glory. We thank you that Christmas is a declaration of war on evil and of the light's victory over the darkness. Together, we celebrate your incarnation with song this morning. Together, we delight that indeed you are the light of the world. And anyone who follows you will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we praise you, and we thank you this morning. 